Stephanie Rosenblum tells us why traveling solo gives her a real advantage. You have real time to go slow and to just pay attention to things you miss when you're talking with other people in a group. You might think twice about going this far off the beaten path, but Tim Neville says you'll really like visiting the Kurdistan region of northern Iraq. You'll go to a little town and, oh, there's the tomb of Nahum, you know, an Old Testament prophet, and then you'll go see an ISIS junkyard. Coming up, Tim tells us how it works to visit Iraqi Kurdistan, a place he calls a Middle Eastern Montana. If you think it's impossible to find an uncrowded place to call your own in the Mediterranean, guides from the Balkans recommend to try any of a thousand islands just off the coast of Croatia. And they're just as beautiful, have just as much to see, so there's plenty of secret spots to hit and explore. The best of Croatia, Kurdistan, and getting some alone time in your travels. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Croatia's been mentioned a lot lately as an attractive destination to visit before everyone else discovers it. Well, a lot of people have discovered it, and to enjoy Croatia, you need a few tips on getting off the beaten path. So we've invited two guides from the region to join us on today's Travel with Rick Steves. They'll offer insider tips for finding the best of what Croatia has to offer you without all the crowds. That's a little later in the hour. Plus, New York Times travel columnist Stephanie Rosenblum takes your calls as we explore the advantages of traveling solo. And if you really want to dodge the tourist crowds, how about a visit to Iraqi Kurdistan? It's in the cradle of civilization. It's also just a short drive from one of the most dangerous cities in the world. That didn't deter travel writer Tim Neville. Once the threat of an ISIS invasion had passed, Tim joined a small group of Americans on a tour of the semi-autonomous Kurdistan region to see for himself how Iraqi Kurds are counting on tourism to become an economic engine. He's here to tell us all about it. Tim, welcome. Pleasure to be with you, Rick. You took a tour to the northern part of Iraq. Describe this region or semi-autonomous region, Iraqi Kurdistan. You know, if I had to describe it um, in very few words, I would say not what you expect. You know, before we went in, of course, I didn't tell my mother, you know, I told my wife, but, you know, you're going to, you know, Iraq. Right. And so obviously, you know, there's some security issues. But in looking into this uh, story more and more, I realized, you know what, this is this is going to be totally fine. Like I I talked Mm -hmm. to various people that I knew. Uh, who knew a lot more about this than I did. And the first thing that you really notice when you go there is, one, how friendly everyone is. As an American, they just want to friend you on Facebook. They want to, like, know where you live. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to practice their English. Um, The second thing you notice, and perhaps along with the first, is just how beautiful it is. I mean, you know, you picture Iraq being desert and sort of grim. And this is just lush and beautiful and crisp streams and mountains with snow. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really does remind me a lot of maybe, you know, northern New Mexico or with a little stretch of the imagination, maybe Switzerland. <laughs> now, if we think about the Kurdish people, it's a complicated thing. But the way I understand it, Tim, is that there's about 5 million Kurds in what you call Iraqi Kurdistan, but there's about 30 million Kurds scattered around through Iran, Iraq, what, Syria and Turkey, right? Correct. Yeah. And those numbers, you have to say, you know, nobody has actually done a census of the Kurds since the 1950s. So 
they are what everybody believes to be the largest ethnic group without a homeland of yeah. their own. And so they're scattered across, you know, these mountainous regions between those countries. And unfortunately for them, Turkey does not want its 10 million Kurds to have any sort of independence. And Iran is very strong, I'm sure, in the same regard. But maybe lucky for the Iraqi Kurds, Iraq is not that strong and it's almost a falling apart country. And uh, this is a a rather peaceful corner of that country that can actually assert itself. So now we have a, a region that is, quote, semi-autonomous. What, is, what does semi-autonomous mean in, in the context of Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically what it means is that they have their own government, but their government still answers to Baghdad in a lot of ways. And so very recently, the Kurds who've been clamoring for their own state for, for eons held a referendum, you know, should we declare independence or not? And the overwhelming uh, result was, yes, we should declare. Well, when that happened, Baghdad clamped down and shut down its airspace, you know, seized oil fields, basically just said, no, you're still part of us. But they are very, very proud of who they are, you know, where they're from, their history. They've got just so many cultural sites. Are they still able to kind of pull back and say, okay, okay, we're not going to be independent, but we're still going to be semi-autonomous even after trying and failing to vote for independence? Yeah, those negotiations are obviously still going on, you know. So very recently, they reopened the airspace over Iraqi Kurdistan. So now they you did. can fly in there internationally. They, they did. Uh, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Neville about his holiday in Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, Tim, you wrote about this in the New York Times. And, and by the way, congratulations. That was a fascinating article. Tell us about the tour that you took, because I was so inspired by this that I I actually went to the Kurdistan Iraq tours site and dreamed about going there myself. Describe the tour. Rick, we get to travel quite a bit, but you know that there are those trips that just really touch you, that stand out, that you will absolutely never forget. And this was definitely one of those. So I started off in Jordan. And then from there, you know, we flew into Erbil, the capital. It's only about a two-hour flight. It was a red eye. The plan was we would land on the ground and we would meet our guides there from Kurdistan Iraq tours. And so when when we landed, first of all, the airport's all new. It's not at all what you're expecting. So the airport's all new. We get in. We drive into town. We get into our hotel. It's a nice hotel. You know, and I'm I'm just like, I'm just thrumming with energy here. I'm You know, it's like just after sunrise. It's maybe <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning. And I turned to our guide. I said, you know, is it, is it okay if I, like, go walk around a little bit, you know? And he's like, absolutely. And I was like, you mean I can just walk around? He's like, absolutely. <laughs> you sure I can just walk around? He's like, no problem, you know? So right off the bat, I knew this was going to be something very, very different. And so I did. So you're in the big city, Erbil, E-R-B-I-L, and it feels a lot like a Turkish uh, urban scene, I suppose. It does. You know, this is one of the oldest cities on, on the planet, in the center of the city. If you look at it, like, on Google Earth, you'll see these concentric rings of uh, roads. And in the center of that is the citadel, which is this, it's like a little mountain, but it's not actually a mountain. What it is, is a city built on top of a city, built on top of a city over, you know, the past 8,000 years or something. Mm -hmm. And so you have this beautiful old part of the of, of the town with, you know, the walls and the warrens and you're walking around and there's a carpet museum in there. And it's just, it's just got that really neat exotic feel to it. That's a tell, isn't it? A T-E-L? It is a tell, exactly. Kurdistan is littered with these things. I mean, you can just, you drive around the countryside and you're like, oh, there's another one. Now, Tim, talk just very, very briefly about the red tape involved here. Uh, visas, passports, currency, flying in, flying out. I mean, can you just fly there like you're going to Athens or is it more complicated? 
Nope. It's exactly like going to yeah, Athens or anywhere, really. Like you can Now, things can change, of course. So right. I, I recommend that people obviously do their homework before going. It's a cash economy, though, right? So you can't cash count economy. on using your credit card. So bring in hard cash, and then you'll change yes. into the Iraqi currency because they are semi-autonomous, but they're probably far from having their own currency. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you go, one of the first things you do is you go down to the market, mm-hmm. and there are people all over there. You know, they have little stands. And you just trade in your money, you know. And I, Kurdistan is not as cheap as you would think it is. I mean, some things are dirt cheap, you know, like right. a cup of tea is is just pennies. Mm-hmm. But like hotels, things like that. I mean, that's largely driven by the oil and gas economy, mm-hmm. by the government work, mm-hmm. and so on. And so the rates are not as cheap as you might think they are. But yeah, it's a cash economy. No visa. Like you could show up at the border and get a, as an American anyway, you could get a thirty day uh, visa right then and there. Wonderful roads. You know, you can drink the water out of the tap. You know, I'm not recommending you necessarily do that. I did that. This is such a shock for people to hear this. It's a shock for me because I would just think if you think of the open sewers in a place like bombed out, you know, Baghdad, it's just such a beautiful thing to think there's a, a city and a society that's getting on with things. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Neville about his experience taking a holiday while he was writing an article for The New York Times, but holiday in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, just eating must have been an experience and wandering through the bazaars and sightseeing there must be different than it's not your typical sightseeing. No, not at all. Like the sightseeing alone is, is just fascinating because, yeah, you know, you, you'll go to a little town and, oh, there's the tomb of Nahum, you know, an Old Testament prophet. And then you'll go see an ISIS junkyard and then you'll go to a citadel or a monastery that's been there since 300 AD or whatever. So just the breadth of the things you can do are amazing. The food, the food is not quite as exciting as I was hoping for, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's still absolutely delicious. You know, picture lamb, chicken, kebab type food, uh, flatbreads. One thing that I love doing, though, is going into the bazaars, into the markets, and they would just have those rows and rows and rows of spices. And they're, they're happy to let you stick your face in them and smell them, you know. And, and one thing that I, um, that I came to love, that I came back with nearly a pound of, is sumac you know, sort of that spice blend. And in there, what they'll do is they'll slice onions really, really thinly and then sprinkle the sumac over them and then let it sit for a while. And what happens is it turns them like a purplish color and just gives them this exotic, just sweet, delicious flavor. And they're meant sort of as a condiment, like you throw them on your kebab. But honestly, Rick, I would just eat them. I'd be like, uh, you know, be like, can I have a bowl of ketchup? <laughs> you know, it's like, I just, oh, I'll just man. eat the condiments. And now, so. and, you know, it sounds just so delightful. But on the other hand, you did mention that you were close enough to military skirmishes that you could see clouds from explosions rise on the horizon. True, true. You know, so, and that has all since settled down, of course. So I was there right before ISIS was pretty much eliminated in, in Iraq. Oh, so know? that would have been related to ISIS. So now ISIS is basically not a an organized conventional force there anymore. Turkey is angry at the Kurds, but they're not about to invade and, and hurt Erbil. And they are seeming to finesse this relationship with Baghdad. So it, by your assessment, is Iraqi Kurdistan going to be around for a few years? Oh, of course, it's going to be around for centuries. You know, there's no doubt. And, you know, and people are still like, can it really be that safe? Are you, are you, you know, you've got to be just exaggerating here. And I, I am not. Like, I would, without hesitation, take my nine-year-old daughter there again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Tim Neville. And he wrote an article in The New York Times about his holiday in Iraqi Kurdistan. Tim, this is so inspirational to me. And I would imagine there were some vivid people-to-people connections 
Can you just wrap up this little conversation about Iraqi Kurdistan with an encounter that you'll never forget? Sure. Um, I would say probably there towards the end of the trip, we were in a little restaurant and this busload of Kurdish I guess they were either early college students or maybe late high school students somewhere in there. And, you know, they saw me standing outside writing in my journal. And one comes up to me and says, excuse me, sir, are you a soldier? And I was like, no, 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 no. He's like, oh, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm American. And, of course, next thing you know, I have like 30 of them all around me, like wanting to pose for pictures and, and wanting to friend me on Facebook. And this one guy, and it's so sweet, Rick. I still get just the greatest messages from him over Facebook. He like the, the men there are much more touchy than we are in the West. And so he comes up and he like just starts poking me in the ribs. He's like, are you tickle? Are you tickle? <laughs> you know, and it's just, you know, that would just never happen. Are you tickle? <laughs> That's the best souvenir. That memory is the best souvenir. Tim Neville, thanks so much for for venturing into Iraqi Kurdistan, having a good time, and telling us about it. Thank you for having me. Tim Neville writes about Switzerland, the Balkans, and even North Korea at timneville.net. You'll also find a link to Tim's feature article about his Iraqi trip with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. In just a bit, guides from Croatia tell us how it's handling its recent popularity as a tourist destination. But first, travel writer Stephanie Rosenblum recommends going on your next trip all by yourself. We're at 877-333-RICK. As a staff columnist for the travel section of the New York Times, Stephanie Rosenblum has come to relish the time she has to herself when she travels alone. In her new book, Alone Time, Stephanie provides tips for feeling safe, meeting strangers, asking for a table for one, and indulging your curiosity on your own schedule. Her examples come from visiting Paris in the springtime, summer in Istanbul, Florence in the fall, and winter in New York City. Stephanie, thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. So lots of travelers actually prefer to travel alone, and and lots of travelers are kind of um, anxiety-stricken about it. From your point of view, what are the basic pros and cons of solo travel? First of all, you know, I don't encourage anyone to do anything that would make their precious vacation time unhappy. But one of the things about traveling alone is that you have this tremendous freedom to pursue the things that are of deep interest to you that may not be of interest to someone else who you're traveling with. And, you know, when you're traveling with a partner, you want to make sure that you're catering to their needs as well, that both of you are happy or the whole family is happy. When you have a little time on your own, you are able to pursue something that might be, you know, completely of interest only to you. And to me, that's such a gift. It is. It's a little bit selfish, but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I have to admit, I like the freedom of not having to be polite to anybody when I'm traveling occasionally. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but you do have to be comfortable just being with yourself. So you have to, uh, you know, manage the art, really, of, of being alone. How do you fight loneliness when you're alone? You know, I think for everyone this is a very personal thing because some people don't get very lonely when they spend a lot of time by themselves, right? I'm one of those people. I can spend a tremendous amount of time on my own, and I do not fall into the abyss. Mm-hmm. Now, I know many people do, and, you know, one of, one of the things that's sort of ironic about traveling alone is that you tend to meet a lot more people than when you're traveling with Hmm. your inner circle because you have to put yourself out there more, right? You're talking to more people. 
you have real time to go slow and to just pay attention to things you miss when you're talking with other people in a group. I just sort of tune into the world in a way when I'm by myself that, you know, when I'm with other people, I'm paying attention to them and I want to have a great conversation. And that is wonderful. It's just a different kind of trip. Rather than compromise your trip by traveling with somebody who's not a good travel partner, if you have Mm -hmm. the boldness and the courage to travel alone and you know how to travel alone well, Mm -hmm. your day will be an unforgettable montage of new friends. Yes. And you can also, you know, you can game for that, right? You can decide, okay, I'm going to this location, but I'm going to sign up for a cooking class while I'm there. Or I'm going to take, you know, I'm going to take a tour for part of the time. So you can, you know, you find ways, in other words, that you can be interacting with people, that you're not completely alone. Food tours are very popular these days. And I love a food tour. Almost any city in Europe that I go to, it's uh, cost about twice what a normal dinner would cost but you invariably are sharing it with eight other travelers. You've got a very vivacious, uh, entertaining local guide, and it's just a, a delightful evening, and it happens to be dinner, but you're making friends, and you're certainly not alone, and you come out of it feeling like that really sort of quenched your thirst for connection with other people. That's right. It sort of fills you up again, and then you can spend a few hours by yourself exploring a mm-hmm. museum, and even museums. You go to a museum alone if it's not for you. Mm-hmm. You can decide I'm going to go on a tour with a docent for a little bit. Because I travel a month at a stretch all alone. People just think Mm. I have some kind of a crew with me or something like that. But when I'm researching my guidebooks, I want to be alone. And uh, I'm never lonely. And I think part of that is the luxury that I'm hiring private guides. And uh, in a way, you know, people, when they look at my TV show, they say it's like you got friends everywhere. And I say, I'm just paying them to be my friends. But I'm (laughs) I'm hiring these guides, and, and they're my sidekick and my entertainers and my teachers and my whatever. And then when I happen to be all alone after that, I've had a lot of social interaction and stimulation. And, and being alone is something that's almost a, a nice little eddy in that river of travel. Absolutely. And you can do that, too. I found taxi drivers, you know, you sort of have these lovely conversations with people when you're by yourself that you might otherwise not have. You probably wouldn't have. You're right. Uh, I kicked off my trip last year, uh, taking an Uber driver in from the airport in Dublin. And the conversation we had worked out to be mm-hmm a blog entry on my Facebook page. It was so good. (laughs) And it was the first hour in Europe, and we were already... I was just remembering how great it is to be alone in a foreign country, wide open to just talk to anybody I want to for however long I want, about whatever I want. As you said, it's that me time. That's right. Uh, There's also just flat-out skills. I mean, if you go to a pub in Ireland or Scotland or, (laughs) or England and you sit at a table, you're missing the whole beauty of a pub because you should sit at the bar if you want to meet people. That's right. And you need to be an extrovert, even if you're not. And so step right up there and, and pretend that they're interested in you, and you'd be surprised how they would be. Absolutely. I was going to say so many um, places now have open kitchens. Um, you know, Robichon in Paris, which is a, a pricey place to eat, but they've created the kitchen so that you're essentially eating at this, like, lovely restaurant, but it's bar seating, like, around an open yeah. kitchen. Frenchie to go is like that now. Like, a lot of places huh. are doing that. I didn't know that was a trend because I just noticed a few of those in my last trip. But uh, that is, I guess, happening all over Europe anyways these days for creative restaurants. Yes, that and communal tables. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Stephanie Rosenblum. And uh, Stephanie is a staff writer for the New York Times travel section. She's written a book called Alone Time to explore the advantages of traveling solo. Her book provides examples in four major cities for each season of the year. Her website is stephanierosenblum.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jane's calling from Whistler in British Columbia. Jane, thanks for your call. 
Thanks so much, Rick, and I'm delighted to be here. And you've actually been talking about the very things that I was wondering about, which is meeting people, because I love traveling in Europe, especially. I want to go to Spain and, you know, France. And I travel by myself. I'm actually over 50. And my concern is how to meet people when you're kind of gone for a few weeks at a time and yet be safe, meet people safely. For a woman especially, I mean, that would be... Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. Because you you don't want to just go up to the bar necessarily and hang out and see who approaches you. There's a lot of con artists, frankly, that position themselves right where you might end up asking for somebody to be friendly, and and that can be a mistake. Uh, Stephanie, what are your thoughts on that? One of the things that I've done in cities is I will go to the front desk at the hotel, And I will say, you know, I'm here alone looking for some advice, some guidance on some, you know, great places to go. And I and I specifically have asked them about safety issues and where they feel it's okay to go at a certain hour, that kind of thing. That's a sort of a very basic thing, but it's handy. And you can also do this with hosts. And, you know, if you're doing rentals, you can actually talk to the people who live there ahead of time and get some guidance for them. Um, One great resource is a website called Solo Travel World, which is a community of solo travelers. Uh, I think they're a really great group. They have a Facebook group, and they talk, they they provide advice for each other, and there are also a lot of them uh, in different places in the world. And so I think they're a great resource, and you may want to ask them specifically about some of the places that you're going. One thing that's really nice is a website called meetup.com, which people tend to use in their hometowns, but is really good also when you're traveling because you can meet up with people all over the world. And it's you can do it in a very safe way because it's groups. You're not looking to talk to somebody one-on-one. This is not hmm. like some sort of dating site or something like that. These are people who just say, oh, we love architecture and we want we like to talk about it and we gather on Thursdays at this location. And it's always a public location. That's one way to, you know, meet other people. And there are all kinds of things. Like sometimes it's a meetup for walking, you know, like a free walk, and it's a mm-hmm. local who leads the walk. Yeah. Or it's a meetup of just people who go to a pub in Dublin somewhere mm-hmm. and, you know. Or in, in Rotenburg, every Wednesday night, there's the English Language Club. And uh, mm-hmm. they walk, it's the Germans there that want to practice their English with tourists. And it's yes. just a great way to connect. Yes, exactly. And so, I, you know, I think the main thing is public groups. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these are, are places that have, you know, if you, if you start going on these sites, you'll see a, a lot of really nice guidance from experienced travelers. Thanks for your call, Jane. Thank you. That was just great. I, I love those ideas, and I, I had never heard of them. So thank you so much, Stephanie. Stephanie, as you were talking with Jane, I was thinking uh, in a place like Sevilla, you'd want to go on the paseo, even if it meant taking a uh, little nap in the afternoon, be out and stroll <laughs> when everybody's out strolling. Uh, yes. And uh, when you book into a bed and breakfast, I find there's two kinds of B&Bs these days. Some of them are just economic. Here's the key, you know, uh, and here's your bed, and, you know, you can come and go as you like. Others are actually um, social experiences just waiting to happen. A lot of people open up their houses, bed and breakfast, because they want to meet you and they want to share an evening with you. But you can tell that by how they're advertised and how the comments are on the different sites. So yes. recognize when you choose a and b it's not a right or wrong thing, but if you want the social interaction, it's a lost opportunity to choose a and b that has a different philosophy about that. Absolutely. New York Times travel columnist Stephanie Rosenblum says if you want to meet people in your travels, the best way is to travel alone. She writes about the advantages of solo travel in her book, Alone Time, and it's published by Viking. 
Betsy's calling from Richmond in Maine. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I've made several trips alone now to mainly Scotland, four or five trips. I'm in uh, my 50s. And eating alone is something I do not know how to do. I know it's all in the head. But actually, because even here in Maine, I don't go out alone. But on my trips, you know, friends think I'm brave to go to Scotland. But I either eat takeaway or eat something in my apartment that I rent. I'm with you. It's frustrating to eat alone sometimes. I don't like to go to a nice, fancy restaurant alone. Sometimes I just go for something functional because I don't feel like enjoying the whole elaborate uh, experience unfolding when I'm sitting there at a table all alone. Uh, Stephanie, what are some tips you might have? It's such an interesting topic. And you're absolutely right when you said it's in, in the head. In you know my book, I've talked to a lot of scholars who actually went out and studied this, and I won't get into all the various ways they did, but it included having people go out and eat alone. And they ended up finding that other patrons don't care when you're eating alone. Like, no one's looking at you. No one thinks mm. you don't have any friends. So I say that only to say that it may help when you're doing this. What I tell myself is I don't want to see less of a city. I don't want to have less of an experience because I'm uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean you have to go out to like the fanciest place. I don't consider myself brave in this way at all. I go to sort of middle of the road places, but I do it because I feel like I want to just have those extra hours of soaking in the atmosphere of a city or tasting some local cuisine that, you know, I might not be able to get if I'm having it in my room. So part of this absolutely, as you say, is like a, is a getting in the right mindset. One of the scholars I spoke to is an expert in the idea of savoring and talks a lot about how, like, when we eat alone, there's this opportunity to have your meal really mindfully. And again, we don't always do that when we're engaged in this like, great conversation, which is wonderful, but it's just a different way of eating. And I don't subscribe to the fact that there are people who feel like if you bring a book with you to dinner, it's somehow cheating. I don't agree. Mm -hmm. I think you can enjoy a book when you're out to dinner by yourself. And a book can be a wonderful companion, and I think it's totally fine to do that. Another thing was what we were touching on earlier, which is, you know, sitting at communal tables, sitting at bars. And I don't mean like eating in a bar. I mean, you know, many restaurants are doing open kitchen seating around like a countertop now. It's become very popular. If you're going at a warm time of year, I love to eat outside. You know, and sometimes I'll get something from a very a lovely like takeaway place and try mm. to have a little picnic for myself in a park or on a park bench so I can, you know, watch the evening atmosphere but also feel like I'm a part of it and I'm still out and having a nice time in the city. But I'm not, uh, I'm not in my hotel room necessarily. But I will also say that a lot of hotels now are realizing that people want to be together. And a lot of people are traveling for business but stay a few extra days for leisure. And they're creating sort of communal spaces either on their sidewalks or in their lobbies for people to kind of eat and relax and mingle essentially. I've seen that for sure. And also I've noticed there's a, a real trend for the uh, happy hour, the aperitivo, where you have uh, bars and cafes positioned to enjoy the passeggiata and when everybody's out strolling. And it's very comfortable to be, uh, you know, savoring a, a light meal and watching the parade of people go by instead of being inside of a restaurant and just watching other people have a good time together. Also, I get a lot of use out of my earbuds when I'm eating alone. I don't feel bad. I love this idea of having a book or having something so you look like you're, you're not stranded there, but you're there, you know, intentionally. Uh, something relating perhaps to the city that I'm in. There's lots of very good uh, programming that can just enhance your experience 
And then because you're not eating with a partner, and to me eating is something that is quite social generally, uh, mm -hmm. I, I enjoy having the audio entertainment uh, there rather than a partner. Well, I like the idea of remembering that no one <laughs> else mm -hmm. is going to care about so me. So true. Yeah, I do recommend, I, I like to carry my journal with me, so then mm. it will look like I have a purpose and I'm writing in my journal. That's a great so. idea. Yeah. Okay. All right, thank you so much, and I do look forward to finding your book, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Betsy. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephanie Rosenblum. Her book is Alone Time, The Pleasures of Solitary Travels. Michael's calling from Charlton, New York. Michael, thanks for your call. Yes, thank you for having me on. When I read the topic, it was uh, such an interesting one because uh, when I was in graduate school, I studied abroad for two semesters, and one of them was in uh, Prague in the Czech Republic. And my professor, when I was living there, forced us for our last three days of our excursion on our semester to not go out with any of our classmates and to just go out and experience the city. And I can honestly say that those days on my own were probably the best in terms of being able to sit down and reflect on what I learned culturally and socially uh, just by going into pubs or small restaurants or I'm a people watcher. So we were there in the summertime and it worked out perfectly. Hmm. And as a high school history teacher, I've led uh, one excursion to Europe and um, instead of going single, I had them go with pairs just for a few hours and kind of go around. And we were in Spain, in Malaga. So they went around the city just to experience the cultures and to view the people and how, how the city really works. And I can honestly say that along myself, those students really appreciated the ability to just take it in kind of off the beaten path a little bit, if you will. Oh, I love that. You know, it reminds me of um, something that Outward Bound does where at the end of their educational sessions with their students, they offer them an opportunity to solo. Mm. And that means that the student goes off alone and reflects, as you said, on the experience they just had. And the feedback to Outward Bound has been that that is one of the most meaningful parts of the entire Outward mm. Bound experience for them. So it's very, it was very interesting to hear you say that. It makes total sense to me. You know, smart professor, Michael, and then for you to do that as a teacher in sort of the next generation, it's just a beautiful a way of yeah. being sensible and sensitive and inspiring your kids to go out there and have that experience. When I think back on it, it certainly wasn't something I calculated, but sometimes I just get cooped up in the room from too much in front of my laptop when I'm writing, and I, it's rather late at night, 10 o'clock or something, and I just want to go for a very slow, quiet stroll in the town all alone, and all the tourists are in, and it's just sometimes the most beautiful experience of the whole day. It's just to take 45 minutes and just stroll aimlessly through the town completely alone. I love it. I have to completely agree. I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people get caught up into stereotypes and the worries of the world. And yeah. until you're really there experiencing them in a natural setting, um, you never really break out of that shell. And I think it's a, You've got it's a to. good thing that, that you do, you know, that just to keep on traveling to experience. I think those are all things that push oh. people to grow from within. Yeah, that's so important and that we... Uh, once you do it, you actually gain a taste for it, and you realize mm. it's almost silly to be nervous about doing it. Michael, thanks for your call <laughs> and, your, and your good thoughts. Take care. No, thank you for having me. Have a great day. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stephanie Rosenblum. We're talking alone time, the pleasures of solitary travels. Stephanie, thanks so much, and uh, best wishes with your traveling and your travel writing. Thank you so much. Same to you. Traveling, traveling. 
We have links to Stephanie's travel columns and her book, Alone Time, Four Seasons, Four Cities, and the Pleasures of Solitude. You'll find it with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. We'll bring Stephanie back later this year to hear more about the seasonal travels she writes about in her book. Guides from Croatia, take your calls in a minute at 877-333-RICK to help us find your own special place on the Adriatic coast. You've always got a friend to travel with here on Travel with Rick Steves. It's been on the hot list of must-see places now for years. The Adriatic coastline of Croatia has become a popular alternative to the busy Mediterranean resorts of Spain, France, and Italy. Some people go to Croatia to see where they film scenes for Game of Thrones and the Mamma Mia sequel. Layers of Greek, Roman, and Habsburg history add stories of their own. And who doesn't enjoy eating well with a view of a gorgeous beach? The government of Croatia has set an ambitious goal to attract more tourists than ever this year. Our friends Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti are tour guides from the region, and they join us now to take your calls at 877-333-7425. Let's explore our options for planning a great getaway to Croatia. Tina and Marjan, welcome. Thank you for having us. I understand your government has recently said we're going to double tourism in the future or something like that. What's your take on that, Tina? Is there enough tourism? Uh, how, would you, how would you have more tourism? Can you handle more tourism? At the moment, I'm a little fearful that we cannot really handle handle the numbers that we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our governments are not really well prepared for that. And you can see that on the roads. We have a lot of traffic congestions. Mm-hmm. So I do hope that they take a little different approach to it. But this last summer was just insane. Everywhere you went, it was just very busy. Are most people going to the famous places, leaving the rest of the country relatively untouristed? I would say there's still a lot of secret spots that yeah, you can enjoy and spend there just yeah. by yourself. Marianne, when I think about Croatia, I just think uh, Dubrovnik, uh, Split. Uh, right, I and those are some itself. of the highlights, but there's a whole lot more to discover. Remember, if we speak even just about the coast, there's more than 1,200 islands. So, yeah. <laughs> so. it's not just the one or two that get and, hit the news. And the international tourists are probably on three or four of the islands, leaving the rest of them. Exactly, and they're just as beautiful, have just as much to see, so there's plenty of secret spots to hit and explore. So, Marianne, it seems like at any point, 90% of the tourists would be on three or four of the famous islands off the Dalmatian coast. There must be a few more. Can you share one that might be less touristed that is worth knowing about? Definitely. The list would be quite long. And even if you go to a famous spot like Dubrovnik, one, of, again, of many examples uh, would be a very short ferry boat ride from the Dubrovnik Harbor. You could hit one of the Elafiti Islands. Uh-huh. There's uh, three main little isles which uh, are traffic-free. There's no cars. So that deters a lot of the tourists away, and it truly is the Mediterranean as it was. Wow, and it's so close to Dubrovnik. Exactly. So even in the most populated tourist hotspots, you are never too far away from your ideal Mediterranean escape. One thing that's in the news lately are all of these filming spots for Game of Thrones and so on. And also Mamma Mia is sort of a big deal now. Uh, uh, Tina, what's the news? A lot of tourists are coming to Croatia because of Game of Thrones. Mm, yes, a lot of tourists are actually coming to Croatia to see where the series w- was filmed. Um, and they actually are not interested in seeing the cities, but they are interested in seeing the sites where those series were filmed. And you can walk with them through Dubrovnik, and they don't want to hear anything about the history of Dubrovnik or history of Diocletian's palace, but they want to see where Daenerys kept her dragons or where they had fights on the walls. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's kind of sad a little bit. 
another thing that I'm really worried about, because for me, one of those islands that were so off the beaten path and they were wonderful, even Tito back in the days of Yugoslavia decided to have his residence over there was the island of Vis. But this last summer they have filmed the sequel of Mamma Mia. Uh-huh. And I'm worried that this year this might be the hotspot. What's it like living and working in former Yugoslavia now? Certainly there's peace compared to the horrible war that your parents lived through. Marianne, what's your take on the government? Well, Croatia, I'm afraid, is uh, pretty much in tune with the global trends where nobody's happy with their government, no matter who gets elected. And there's a lot of frustration with the um, ineffectiveness of government, corruption, and so forth. And it's leading to an increased polarization Why do you think government is ineffectual? And why is your society so divided? I mean, if I would have the answer to that, I would... (laughs) 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 But I mean, when you think about what's going on in Europe, uh, Poland has a a kind of a scary government, I think. And Hungary the same, uh, but uh, increased polarization, a lot of frustrated people looking for... Is it fear? Is it driven by all of these refugees? It's such a small part of it. It's many different issues, particularly in Croatia. It's the high unemployment, the uh, Mm -hmm. possibilities for for young people, the economy. There's a lot of skeletons in the closets from the war that are still over there. Oh, that's true. You have a huge huge baggage because of the war. unfortunately. Well, from a tourism point of view, it feels like good times, Mm -hmm. I would say. And there's more infrastructure, and uh, that's, that's encouraging. And tourism will bring a boost to the True. economy, which is a great thing for former Yugoslavia. And this is, in fact, the first year where Croatia got back to the same numbers where it was before 89. Oh, is that so, right? Yep. So this is hopefully... Before 89, before yeah. the war. <laughs> yeah. The first numbers meaning the numbers of tourists. That's right. Holy cow. So that is quite a milestone. Yep, it is quite a milestone. It's the record year. Unfortunately, there's a lot of focus on the numbers, and that mm-hmm. is another legacy of the old days from Yugoslav tourism, where numbers were everything without giving consideration of the impact on the environment, how much it actually contributes to the economy. It was just numbers that looked good on paper. So I hope there's more and more of an emphasis that one should look away from that and actually work on the quality. You know, both of you seem just so smart and so open and so eloquent in your your second language of English. Are you products of the public education system in former Yugoslavia, or did you have rich parents that could get you the best school? (laughs) Well, during the times of Yugoslavia, there was really no no other option. That was it, public education. And And you grew up up during that time. Yeah, Yeah. and still nowadays, I think it's so rare, maybe private kindergarten, but... It's public. public. It's so public, you just did yeah. your studies and you succeeded yeah. under the communist grade school. Mm-hmm. And then today yeah. you've carried yeah. on and, and you're functioning uh, quite well as tour guides. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti about what's going on in former Yugoslavia, Croatia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Martina's calling it from Atlanta. Hi, Martina. Dobardan. Hello, Marjan Dobardan. That's the first word you need to know, Doberdan. Good day. That's right. Um, I had the privilege of visiting Croatia for the first time about 18 months ago, and I fell in love with the country. I've actually met and become friends with a woman who I call my sister from another mister, Mm, or in Croatian, it's my rodica, (laughs) and she helped me find my family, my mother's family's from um, Dalmatia. But some of my favorite places that I visited um, 18 months ago, and I went back in last October, of course, Dubrovnik. But on the coastline, I also loved Zadar, 
mm-hmm. uh, which is purported to have the most beautiful sunset in the world. And they have that lovely, it's an the organ, organ that yeah. the <laughs> ocean plays. Yeah. It started off as an art installation, so the sound changes as the waves enter these little channels and produce different sounds. And it sounds like a melody, like humming of the oh, sea and so right? while How you're watching organic. the sunset. It's hard to describe. One just has to go there and, and experience and it Zadar. with all your senses. Yeah. yeah. Martina, have you been to the capital city, Zagreb? I have, and I love it. Uh, one of my cousins lives there. She's a 25-year-old, and she's very much plugged into the cafe culture. So we spent mm. a few nights there. She's a musician, and she gigged at a coffee house. And we hung out, and we had pancakes, which is not like American pancakes. Tina, can you explain a little bit about the coffee culture and that sort of scene in Zagreb? Oh, yes. Well, I think all of the former Yugoslavia, but I think Zagreb especially, we have this amazing coffee culture where literally everything is done behind a coffee table when with a little tiny cup of coffee. Uh, we always say that the business is done over there. We meet our friends there. We meet mm-hmm. our boyfriends, girlfriends, future husbands, wives. We would just hang out in coffee bars a lot, and it's just where the culture really kicks in. Coffee bars. Yeah. Now, in Zagreb, you've got some some fascinating sites. What are Mm -hmm. a couple of sites that you'd recommend seeing? Mm, I would definitely recommend one of my favorite things is the Naive Museum, Mm -hmm. Naive Art Museum. So Naive Art meaning uh, sort of untrained, wild, genius in the rough kind of thing. Yeah, genius in the rough. Because art was not really sponsored back in the day, and you were kind of... So this is the best Playing of the, of roughly, the farm boy art. Yes, in, I would say. In, in the museum there yeah. in Zagreb. And it was one of the most beautiful museums. It is, it is wonderful. And another one that I really enjoy is the Museum of Broken Relationships, which I think it's huh. phenomenal. It's nothing like that in the world. It's a couple that actually decided that they will split, but they had certain things that they didn't know how to share. So is it yours? Is it mine? Well, we don't really know. So let's just put a museum of the things that are kind of, of left us. out there. <laughs> and then people started hearing about it and they started bringing stuff in from their relationships. That, physical things. Yeah, physical that things. They like couldn't a decide little, who owned it. A little bunny or, <laughs> you know. Marianne, that's sort of the um, quirky personality. Mm-hmm. You can almost psychoanalyze that. It's, it's something that doesn't surprise me you'd find yep. in Croatia. Yep. Talk a little bit about that. Well, fortunately, there's this, um, I mentioned earlier, there's this, um, there's still this baggage when it comes to tourism from the old Yugoslav day, how things were approached, whether customer how should be treated, how bars, hotels should be. And now there's this whole new young generation of uh, young people that travel, have all these fresh ideas, mm-hmm. and are transferring them in every aspect of their daily life. And it's just wonderful to experience this renaissance. You know, I got to say, culture. you two are both young generation tour guides. And when I'm traveling in Eastern Europe, if I ever have to work with a tour guide who's older from the communist times, it's very frustrating, to be honest. They just are like um, robots. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that to me? It's just, it's like day and night, the difference. Uh, Are you comfortable talking a bit about that, Marianne? (laughs) Sure. I I grew up in a place like that down on the coast. My my father was the manager of a large resort with several hotels and bungalows and hotels. And I basically grew up seeing firsthand how things worked. And um, uh, it's just a mindset that people grew up with, what tourism... I felt, I felt like tour guides were broken spirits that had to recite something that was dictated to them. <laughs> to a large extent. It's just everything was pretty much preset, the expectations, how mm-hmm. things should be managed and done. 
And if, again, you, if you distinguished uh, yourself, it could only cause you problems. I mean, there's probably no way to go up. It just not not necessarily. Yeah. It wasn't, but uh, yeah, there were certain expectations on how things yeah. should be done, and well, I'm glad that who you're... wanted to succeed <laughs> should follow them. So ultimately, yeah, I'm glad you're more free spirited now. <laughs> Tina, yeah. any thoughts Thank about God. that? Yeah, I, if I can say it, I remember the days when we started doing tours for you, and you know, we sat with Marian, and you know, the all no grumps and being late and all that, and I'm like, oh my God, really? we can leave people behind because we were still kind of given those thoughts and ideas, but you know, now it's so much different. And now when I work with some local guides, I must say that sometimes it gets a little frustrating because they don't understand that you need to go a little bit outside of that picture. Yeah. You know, out of the box. That's the problem that a lot of people have. There's a a residue of that conformity from the very strict, everything top down in communism that survives. Disappearing fast, disappearing fast. Well, thank thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Martina, thanks for your call. Fala. Bye bye. Tour guides Tina Hiti and Marian Kriskovic are bringing us expert advice for planning a trip to Croatia now on Travel with Rick Steves. Scott's calling in from San Antonio in Texas. Hi, Scott. Hi, Rick and Marianne and Tina. Thanks Hi. for having me. My wife and I will be traveling to Croatia in a few months, and we went to find local, non-touristy, out-of-the-way restaurants but don't speak a word of Croatian. And we were wondering how easy it would be to recognize menu items on perhaps a handwritten menu, and how tolerant do you think the locals will be of our best efforts to speak the language? I think they would be very presently surprised if you make the effort to to pick up on a few words. But beyond that, English is taught in schools. So from elementary, in many cases, even right from kindergarten, kids start learning English. So you shouldn't have any bigger problems communicating, getting around uh, when it comes to restaurants. Most menus are multilingual. It's hard to find one just in Croatian. If that's the case, the owner is usually happy to explain and show, so um, you shouldn't have any problems whatsoever. Yeah, Scott, remember, it seems logical that a smaller language would be less likely to speak English, but the fact is the smaller the language, the more likely they'll speak English as mm-hmm. a second language. In Italy or France or Spain, you can get by without speaking English. But in Croatia, any tourist that comes in is going to want to have English on that menu. I'm wondering, Tina and Marianne, if you're a traveler like me or Scott and you want to find the, quote, untouristy restaurant, sometimes the business that tourism brings in enables a restaurant to do a better job. What is the balance there? Do you want a completely untouristy restaurant or do you want a mix or do you want to sit on the waterfront with, with all the tourists? It's hard sometimes because lots of people ask that precise question. Everybody wants the the restaurant where it's not touristy, it's a genuine experience. The unfortunate thing is that many restaurants in the top tourist sites and cities along the coast will be open only seasonally, just in Mm. the summertime. Mm -hmm. And the owners might not even be local and cater only to the demands of tourists. Again, that's something that was prevalent in the past. Now, yet again, with this new generation of young Croatians that are growing up, they really care about presenting their culture. And there's more and more restaurants and efforts to really show the local food, not just the French fries and uh, mm. schnitzels, whatever. So just asking around, either just at the TI or and have engaging a cu- conversation. Have a curiosity for the national dishes. Tina, very quickly mm-hmm. in Croatia, what are three or four dishes we should be aware of? I would say one of the first things, some lamb, lamb on lamb? a skewer, mm-hmm. that would be good. When you're close. So if you see a restaurant with a lamb on a spit, yes, that's a good Yes, definitely sign. go for it, yeah. Yeah. 
and trout as well trout. By, in the lakes mm. yeah by the lakes then when you're on the coastline mm. definitely any kind of seafood sea bream is very oh, good I love sea bream if you're down on the Dalmatian coastline you can also try some kamenice or certain kind of oysters from our part oysters mussels in uh-huh. a really nice wine sauce and Marianne, what about burek and what about baklava? Uh, burek and baklava are not really typical for Croatia. They uh, spilled over from neighboring Bosnia, but became very popular fast food options that you will find almost on every corner. Croatia is known for wonderful, great bakeries where you'll find lots of burek, so which is that, a type of that, filo uh, dough. Ottoman, Ottoman and Muslim exactly. from Bosnia. Scott, I hope that's some good tips for you. Uh, that, that is. That, that's uh, reassuring. I can't wait to uh, try it out. How do you say bon appetit in Croatian? Mm. Dobartek. Uh, this is so much fun talking about Croatia with you guys. We've been talking with Tina Hiti and Marian Kriskovic about traveling Croatia. Let's just talk a, a vivid experience. I'll never forget Rovin, my favorite town on the coast, sitting literally in the rocks on pillows with chandeliers flickering in the wind, having a cocktail with people from all over former Yugoslavia. It was just beautiful. Shame your one little moment, Tina, uh, and then Marian, that you would have as a guide with a traveler? For me, it's the hill towns of Istria because they are not very highly populated with tourists, I so would say. Istria, I-S-T-R-I-A, Istria, really yes. close to Venice, just a little bit yes. east of Venice. Okay, yes. the hill towns of Istria, yeah. Motovun is one. Motovun, Grožnjan, then also Brtonigla, also Buje. Then I was walking around Motovun and, and heard uh, uh, one of these a cappella singing groups yes. playing. I couldn't believe the world I was in there, and it was real. It wasn't yeah. for the tourists. And you go to Grozhnyan, which is an artist colony, and you can see artists really there nice. in situ working on their projects, and it's just amazing. It's wonderful. Where is that? What town is that? Uh, Grozhnyan. Marian, how about you? What's the experience? For me, it would probably be one that uh, people wouldn't necessarily think of because my favorite time um, down on the coast uh, where I grew up is uh, the wintertime. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> when there's very few people, but the temperatures for most of the time stay pretty mild. And one thing that I enjoy every year is the olive picking season. I'm thinking of olive picking time uh, with my family and my father's um, olive orchard. The temperatures are just perfect, the beautiful blue skies, the the colors are just so much crisper, it's not too hot, it's not misty, it's mm. all the everything smells nicer, all the herbs, the Mediterranean vegetation. You can actually focus on your family, the wonderful food. It's just those special moments. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marian Kriskovic and Tina Hiti about the wonders of Croatia. Let's close with just pretending our audience can speak Croatian. And you're going to give them a big welcome to your country. Dobrodošli u Hrvatskoj. Dobrodošli. And what does that mean? Welcome. Well, thank you both very much. Hvala. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Isaac Kaplan-Wolner and Sarah McCormick at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to Tim Underwood at Audio Tango in Bend, Oregon, and the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, 
and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.